This is Underscore, a podcast of music and story. Hey, Will. Hey, <laughs> so man. Dude, there's you. so much that I want to talk to you about. I, I, like, my mind is just racing with things that I want to talk about. Uh, man, it's been so long since we've done Underscore, which... Uh, I know both of us feel super guilty about because we care so much about this show. Oh we care gosh, so much about our yeah. listeners and film music. Not even uh, describable. Yeah, nothing has changed in that regard. But what a year it has been, wouldn't you say, man? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've dreamed of and planned restarting the podcast probably a thousand <laughs> times. Boy, it's been a difficult concept during the quarantine. And kind of hoping that today, as we can start to finally picture a post-COVID world, I'm not trying to jinx anything here, but it might be fun to kind of try to restart the engine and maybe see if we can bring kind of some of that positivity um, kind of back into the airwaves. That would be so nice. You know, I mean, I think that's something that we've always tried to do on our show is to focus on what we love, focus on what's excellent and sublime about film music and music in general. And uh, I'm really proud of, you know, the work that we've done together on this podcast and the people that we've met and the experiences that have come out of it. So, yeah, I mean, I just think even having this in our lives again would be a really beneficial thing. But Marty had a really interesting idea um, of one of the things today will be kind of an informal episode, as you could probably imagine. Um, But one of the ideas Marty had, which I loved, was spending a little time to focus on some of the positive things that have happened in this year of so many difficult and horrible things, you know, with the pandemic and COVID and lockdown and so many things in, you know, everyone's personal lives. I'm sure we all have a lot that comes to the front of our minds that's been difficult, but uh, we thought it might be nice to focus on just individually and the world at large, the things of this past year that we're really grateful for and that uh, we're feeling happy and positive about. Yeah, I'm excited to see what emerges here. Like a lot of folks, I probably would describe the last year of my life as a really low period. So it isn't intuitive to necessarily frame it this way, but that's probably why it will be valuable. This feels like therapy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious, Will, when I think about the beginning of lockdown for me, I got to admit, there was a lot of those first few weeks that I really kind of loved, actually. Yeah, me too. You know, being a little bit more on the introverted side of things and getting this time to kind of just, you know, coop up with my wife and make sure that we're staying safe. And again, in that first few weeks or a month, you could go through some of your favorite movies and kind of explore this new lifestyle, I think with some excitement and some enthusiasm. And I know that became just really difficult for any of us to maintain after right. a couple of weeks or so. I think so much is mindset. It's not even necessarily what we're doing or not doing. I mean, I, obviously there's a lot that's been said about economic devastation and things in people's personal lives, but I do think some of it was context when it was sort of framed as like, we all are getting a break from work or like a break from school. There was this sort of feeling of, it's like a snow day for everyone. Yeah. And there was something about that that was kind of nice. There's a lot of people using the time for an outpouring of creativity. I didn't personally feel like 
I, 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 you know, in retrospect, I feel like I have done a lot of things this year that I'm proud of, but I remember they're feeling this almost pressure at the beginning of like, people need to be writing their screenplays and writing music and make a whole album. And so many people became so prolific that there was almost this pressure I felt to be creative, but I, I almost couldn't tap in emotionally. I felt a little locked up. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if you felt that way too. Well, it's funny. I had a similar experience. I think a lot of the productive artists were eager to share what they'd been working on in social media. And I think that's great. Overall, people really got a lot of benefit out of that. But I remember speaking to a lot of friends and speaking to you and speaking to a lot of artists and actually finding that most of the artists I was talking to had a similar experience where we were a little shell-shocked and it wasn't so intuitive or natural to kind of dive into a, a lot of art. I guess <laughs> focusing on the positive side, um, I actually got a lot of comfort kind of in those conversations with you and with our brother Carl and with a lot of my other artist friends. What I sort of gleaned from that is at our core, we're very sensitive creatures, and I think we need to be sensitive creatures. I know you and I have had conversations about this a lot. I think if a composer loses too much sensitivity, um, you're unfortunately not really going to be able to swim in these waters. We kind of need to maintain our sensitivity to you know, a suspended fourth falling and resolving to the major third. It makes perfect sense if some of those sensitive artists were really hit pretty hard or even kind of knocked out by the virus. I agree. Um, on the other hand, I thought it was amazing seeing all of the work um, in so many different mediums that folks were getting up to. I'm hoping that five, 10 years from now, I will be able to look back at that early part of the quarantine as kind of this extended uh, slumber party or something. I uh, like what you were saying, Will. It's like, oh, okay, this is canceled. This is canceled. It was like a snow day in the spring. Anyways, as we're kind of approaching that one year anniversary, I'm just sort of struck by some of those early memories. Well, it's funny, of all the time that we had, I find it interesting that we never started underscore up until this point when arguably we're more busy in our lives now than we were when this thing started. But I do think that speaks to what you're saying, which I completely agree with that need to be emotionally attached to your work. I think that's something that I've heard different perspectives on and particularly within our field and in the world of entertainment and media music in general, there tends to be this rule of thumb, which is like, don't get attached to your work. Don't get attached to your work. Mm. It's disposable. You're doing it for others. And I, I totally understand the utility of that. It's that you shouldn't value your own expression above what it's in service to, that you're part of a team. Right. But I think it's wrong to encourage artists to emotionally disconnect from what they're making, because I think it hamstrings their ability to communicate through music effectively, because what they're being hired to do is to translate the uh, emotional needs of the film or the game or the specific situation into musical expression, which, I mean, it quite literally doesn't intrinsically have those emotions. It has notes and rhythms and pitches and timbres. And so we have to make those emotional associations. And I kind of think we can't do our job successfully if we don't get, and I don't mean un, attached in an unhealthy way, like it's irrational, but right. I mean attached but to- But affected, yeah, moved. completely. So I, I do think that there's like 
there's a part of that where when you're concerned about the world or your loved ones or the people around you, um, you might not feel in the emotional headspace to be working on something creative. But what's interesting is this year has been quite long. And so really it's like that, that first period where everyone seemed to be quite prolific. I remember feeling like what's wrong with me. I'm not creating, but once it's sort of set in to be, this is the new normal. And this is kind of what our lives are looking like. I kind of went back into my habits of creating. And personally, I feel like I've done a lot of writing and projects and things this past year that I'm really proud of and that I, I was grateful for. And I see some of those, whether it's collaborations with other artists or meeting new friends or starting a grad program or working on music with Emma, um, this, this feeling of like, I'm always going to have some sort of fondness for this time because within this past year, I got engaged within this past year. I kind of um, did a lot of writing of this musical that I'd been working on for a while, worked on a lot of songs with Emma and did some film music and game music projects. Yeah, we moved to a new city. So it's, there've been a lot of positives that have happened kind of despite the, the pandemic which I know isn't really the focus of what we're we're doing today, but it's something that's on my mind. I think that's a great topic to land on. And I'm hoping that the more and more that we can pull from some of these positive moments, maybe the more momentum we'll have as doors start reopening in our world here to, yeah, really bring some of that energy and some of that drive. Yeah, into- speaking of doors opening, the new Bruno Mars... <laughs> How freaking amazing is that song? Yeah, it's just gorgeous. And couldn't have arrived at a more perfect time. We're talking about the new project of Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack have put like a a band together. Um, And the first single and video dropped so good. It's It's like that kind of Delphonics slow ballad with strings from like the early 70s sort of vibe. That time in between Motown and disco. It's really hitting the spot right now. And it's musically fun and delicious and yeah. A, a really delightful song. It, it's so fun. It's so sweet and positive too. Like, well, I was so just delighted by the lyrics and everything. How playful it is, and how there's a real sweetness to the song. I'ma leave the door that for many years I would have thought would be too old-fashioned or maybe considered saccharine to do in a, a modern pop song, like this delightful modulation that happens right before the chorus and the sort of playful call and response, the use of like the, you know, orchestral elements having strings and like glockenspiel and all these things. It's, it's very much a, a pastiche song. Uh, but it also, yeah. it's that kind of thing that we've talked about on our podcast before, like something like Mary Poppins Returns, where it's earnestly done. It's a melody that is so incredibly strong. It isn't just about nailing the vibe, like where something like 
Uh, and I love the song Uptown Funk, but Uptown Funk to me is like nailing a style like really this well. This is the right palette of sounds yeah. that take us back to an earlier record. Yeah, know? it's not to me like a melody that can actually stand up with the things it's inspired by. But this song to me does that amazing dance of like, it puts me in this headspace that's very specific. And then it's like a new song that's almost better than things from the, I, I, I'm so inspired by that because it's it's the, that exciting thing as a writer where it's like oh maybe the best songs haven't been written and maybe even like the best 70s style pop songs like soul R&B songs haven't been written like that's a cool thought to think that there could be new work it's an incredible feeling and I think it's really important for any of us there's just no substitute for latching on to a new piece of art that fills you with that much inspiration mm-hmm. In our moment, there is a lot of art that's built from recontextualizing things, remixing elements. I wouldn't blame anyone for kind of dismaying a little bit at times Yeah. that, oh, you know, really maybe we have run out of new ideas, but I would almost argue that's that's kind of like depression talking or something. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, if you can find that piece of art, film, poem, song, new cue of film music that takes you there. Yeah, don't hold back in embracing it and loving it and replaying it. Completely. In terms of movies, uh, we've gotten two phenomenal, like, lifetime achievement Pixar films in the past year, with Onward and Soul both being among, I think, the best Pixar films ever. Um, And it's interesting, Onward... I think was the last movie I got to see in the theater before all the pandemic. That movie, I know both you and I were really talking about how affected we were by it because it has this sort of theme of family and brotherhood and like a relationship between two siblings. And it's, it's a, it's well, incredible. This great part of the thrill I think with Onward is that the marketing of the film doesn't give away what the movie is and what it's ultimately about. We would hate to spoil the experience for anybody, but when you finally realize what this movie is, oh my gosh, it's just, yeah, it knocks me out. And a great example of all of these dominoes being so carefully and brilliantly staged, and then as you get into the finale, they just all fall, and it's so satisfying. And then, yeah, I think Soul was such a great winter holiday treat and really just a celebration of the power of music. I found it honestly just staggering how deep of a movie and message it was. It's painting a really nuanced message. I I mean, I think for any creative person who deals with some of that angst that comes along with an insecurity of when will you have the level of success that you're kind of aiming towards and uh, artistically being fulfilled and that what it is that you do, like that's your purpose for being on earth and the film grapples with a lot of really painful and real beautiful but complex things and I think it handles it in a really mature way and it's one of those films that 
affected me in the way that a great work of almost nonfiction would like a, right. a, a book by a great philosopher or almost like a religious thinker or a psychologist or something like it has a real profound quality where I feel like my outlook on life itself, not only music, not only artistic expression, but my outlook on life has changed even ever so slightly from watching that movie. It really, yeah, that was very profound. And I think just what so yeah, many of us really needed this piece. year. I've never quite experienced a film that has explored the space beyond the archetypal happy ending the way that Soul does. And I'm so grateful that it happens to be really relevant to a career in music. Yeah, so can't say enough about that. And great music. I mean, both films where music has an important philosophical relationship to the stories. Because like with Onward, scored by two brothers. Yeah. There's a, a real quality to the emotions, I think, of, of that film that absolutely comes through in the music. And then with Soul, not only the Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor score, but all of the John Batiste arrangements, improvisations. First of all, uh, how they make these animated characters look, they breathe and they phrase, and it's like every bit yeah. of the music, it's honestly the most accurate portrayal of jazz <laughs> ever in film, and it's this animated film, but like, you can yeah, tell every To watch note. the saxophonist yeah. play is kind of mind-blowing. Yeah, the drums, the piano, the other thing that's amazing to me about John Batiste is when Jamie Foxx's character plays the piano, it's not John Batiste playing, it's that character. Like, John Batiste is being an right, actor right. in that moment, and he created the soul of that performer. He has a very identifiable style where it's almost like he gets sort of lost in the notes, has a very flourishy, almost like impressionistic, it sounds like Ravel or something. Yeah, the kind of the way that like he jazz, flies across the keys. Kind of dreamscape. Yeah, an attention to detail that. I wouldn't expect from not even just your average film, but even a great film about music, quite often things like that tend to be simplified, beating the message home to the audience. And I, it's like, I'm always so amazed by Pixar. I mean, these are films that are meant to be for children. And so often with, you know, young people's entertainment, things get dumbed down or simplified to an insulting degree. But with Pixar, it's almost like it treats its audience with a respect that most films for adults don't. Well, and Pixar seems to give themselves these targets that when listed on a page would almost seem impossible. Right. I imagine they would be things like profound philosophical theme we've yet to explore <laughs> in a film. I'm sure in the case of Soul, it's to spotlight and represent a portion of America that we haven't in a film. It's also creating an exciting, propelling story that we haven't seen before. Also populating it with characters that are appealing and could be toys. The list goes on and on. It's amazing to encounter a movie like that that's hitting all of those targets. For me, it was sort of bullseye after bullseye. Yeah, I had that same feeling you were describing a minute ago, Will, where it's like, oh, maybe it's possible like greatest kind of film hasn't been made yet. Maybe there is a new kind of movie that could be made that we haven't explored. Boy, that's such an exciting idea. Yeah, and you know, film isn't the only medium that I think uh, has capacity for growth. I mean, one of the interesting things about this past year has been 
in the world of games. It's been an absolutely thriving year yeah. fiscally and in terms of excellent titles that have been released. But I know both of us, Marty, uh, were so incredibly enamored, moved, changed in that same way we described with Soul through playing The Last of Us Part Two, That game was an absolutely. absolutely transcendent experience. I mean, one of the most important things I've experienced in any medium uh, in terms of right. the story, the philosophy. It's ultimately saying so much about human nature in what ended up being the perfect time to say it. I think one of my fondest memories of the quarantine is there was uh, a period of time where I was relocating back to the studio and my wife had flown off uh, to Arizona to support her dad and his surgery. He's doing well and he's recovering. So I got to spend a lot of time with my studio partners and my good friend Jeff. Um, and I just had this overwhelming feeling when I finished playing The Last of Us Part Two that I wanted to share it with Jeff. We occasionally play video games during downtime at the studio, but we're playing Super Nintendo and, you know, Nintendo <laughs> Entertainment System games. So he hadn't played many contemporary games in a while. I brought the PlayStation, planning on just popping in Last of Us Part Two, giving him a little primer on what the game was. And then as I thought about it more and more, I realized ah, that would kind of do a disservice. Maybe I'll at least start him off in the first game. Um, cut to, uh, he ends up playing through the entire first game, the expanded DLC story in between the two games and played through all of Last of Us Part Two. He had a transformative experience playing all of that and afterwards replayed each of those games multiple times. I want to say at last count, he's probably played Last of Us Part Two six times, <laughs> I, I want to say. That'll be a huge highlight when I think back on this year. I, I love that. And also one of the things that was so evocative about that story and playing that it and the fact that it was a game being interactive is how many parallels there were to the situation in our world this living in a post-pandemic world right. some of the elements of social unrest that are represented in that game and the kind of like sympathy that they have to these really complicated people the, the characters in that game are portrayed as deeply flawed but deeply human and they're capable of both love and hate and they're capable of viewing entire groups of people as the other and turning enemies into them but then you see that other side and then you see that there's still humanity in other people that are also capable of love and hate and good and bad things and it's like it's not a philosophy that you could describe in a single sentence it's so profoundly real and it has the amount of weight in it that an event in your life would actually have and I think that's why Jeff right. just consumed it so and I can relate to that I mean I think one of the things that defines an artistic personality is that sort of obsessiveness with regards to whether it's an album or a song or a movie or a game that kind of experiencing it again and again and again you know wearing the record out until it's unlistenable is a thing that yeah. I, I think defines a lot of artists and I think there's so much we learn from that but I think it's also because you can get something different if a work of art is really deep if it has emotional depth, structural depth. And I think any mixed medium like film or video games that 
are the result of so many different disciplines coming together. There's, I mean, you could play that game 500 times and find something new. And also there's the fact that it isn't procedural, that things happen in a different way. And there are so many layers and Easter eggs and things in a game like that that are designed to reward returning again and trying something different, making a different choice, uh, this kind of thing. And what I'm amazed at with the Naughty Dog games is I think they're not as open-ended as I think a lot of other titles, but I don't think they fall into those misleading traps where they promise that they're giving you choice, but really you're just given two decisions. Are you going to be evil? Are you going to be saintly? And it's kind of like, that's not really what decisions in life are like. And The Last of Us Part Two. And I think the first game put you in the shoes of a complicated person who's made a lot of bad choices, but you understand why they make those choices and you understand why they care about the people that they care about. And in turn, because you're right along with them, you care about those people too. And it does something through that that I don't think you could do in literature. I don't think you could do in film or graphic novels. That feeling of agency over another person and becoming one that like where the machine goes away the controller is gone you're just in this world right i realized during playing that game that there were so many kinds of emotional narrative experiences possible that i had never encountered and definitely never imagined you know in literature you can experience something like the unreliable narrator which can be very powerful in a game, you can have an unreliable narrator, but it's you. You're controlling it. And it's very unclear where the line is between your choices and your accountability for them and the path of this character. Also that you can be sprung into inhabiting a character who you don't know and the narrative implications of that. Yeah, it's really exciting. And I left with a similar feeling to you that it was like a privilege standing on the edge of a new frontier. It's funny as far as like the open world versus kind of more highly narrativized. I don't know if it's at all related to, you know, there's that saying, the easiest person to sell to is like a salesman. I kind of have the sense that as a creative person, as an artist, composer and writer, I'm just not that interested in an open-ended open world that's a sandbox with toys in it. I am really interested in other narrative voices, and I want to be under their spell and kind of taken away by them. I agree. I mean, this is something where you and I are in common, and I know it's probably not the prevailing perspective of a lot of game players that sort of like wanting to be in the hands of something else. I also think it's just a weak spot of games has always been writing and I think there are particular challenges to the medium but the Naughty Dog games are just so many tiers above what other people are doing and it reminds me of Pixar in that way where they're clearly at the cutting edge in um, certain technical fields but the stories they're telling and the characters that really feel central to the stories are arrived at in an earnest way that predates film, that predates games. It's just great storytelling. It's an understanding of humanity. And I think this is something that any of us can learn, uh, regardless of your discipline. Because film music is 
a form of storytelling. I think it's a more metaphorical form, but there's quite a lot of film music that's very explicit. Right. I think about this a lot when you encounter the phenomenon of placing a random piece of music with visuals and they serendipitously line up in these ways that sometimes give you yeah. goosebumps. A cynical person could look at that and say like, well, it's just completely random. It's a trick of your brain to read into something. And I'm not discounting that there's an element of that, but I think what it reveals is that there are deeper structures than musical structures within music. And there are deeper structures within film, within animation, than the literal right. language, the visual language of, we're responding to uh, the 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 idea of pace, the idea of tempo, the idea of when to introduce something, when to take it away, that I think even whether we're aware of it or not, it's there. It's a deeper, almost sub-layer of so much art. I think a great way to improve if you're a painter, if you're a composer, if you're a photographer is really become enamored with something in an entirely separate discipline. It's beautiful and nice. Because I think sometimes there will be principles that we can pick up from photography that impacts our music making. There are principles we can pick up from screenwriting, from songwriting, writing lyrics that affect your ability to orchestrate or whatever it is. It's one of those things that's easy to dismiss. It sounds like, well, who has the time to spend even more of a deep dive on something that isn't my career passion. Also, I can understand someone thinking that it sounds a little loose logically. Right. And if you haven't had the experience, it could maybe even sound sort of on the new age side of things. For anyone that has had that interdisciplinary revelation kind of experience as you're connecting concepts across mediums it's just so powerful and i think it also just so happens that it's very difficult to verbalize that phenomenon with language luckily we have these artistic outlets that we can pour those revelations into as we kind of are reviewing this wild and crazy year that has just been such a blessing. So I'm curious, Marty, maybe we could talk a little bit about some personal things for us. So we've talked, I, I think, a, a decent amount about some of the art that's existed and we could go on. There's, there's so much more to talk about and I think we'll get back to it, but I kind of want to touch on a few personal items. So what are some things within your own life, whether it's music you created, projects you worked on, or something entirely outside of that space that has been a blessing or something that you've been happy with in this past year? No, I think that's a great question. Uh, like we've been talking about, I did find that earliest period of quarantine to be a shock to the system for my artistic self. But as I started working on more projects and things started coming in, it kind of happened gradually. But I did have this realization in this past year. I think it has to do with exuberance. A lot of us that create and compose might find ourselves kind of describing this era as aesthetically somewhat cold, let's say in the realm of film music. It has felt, at least to me and to others that I hear talking about this, that kind of restrained melodic movement, kind of powerful impacts in the low end, these things are cool. And I also happen to find them at times sort of cold. Faced with 
that sort of aesthetic trend, I think those of us that have been really interested in a lot of color in our music, a lot of lyricism, a lot of melodic driven music, a lot of excitement, I think at times it has felt like, oh, this is kind of difficult to advocate for. And I also don't want to be out of step with my era. And for me, I had a personal breakthrough that has to do with exuberance. I was just finding that when I would try to kind of tentatively introduce the elements I just described, I was finding it just wasn't very successful. And some of this, I would argue, it's almost kind of philosophy first, and then the music you write is kind of downstream of your philosophy and your attitude. But I was finding that, wow, you can actually deliver quite a lot if you're bringing that kind of exuberance with yeah, it. Yeah, it's confidence, too. Yeah, totally. I think it's something we intuitively understand in other areas of our life. You know, if you're timidly sharing something about yourself, that's actually going to create a different kind of response in whoever you're speaking to than if you kind of share it with a smile. I was finding kind of breakthroughs in my own music, really tapping into what I wanted to do from a place of love, not this despair of, oh, is there even a place for these kind right. of musical gestures? Or can that I, I love? sneak it into this thing that people are going to like? Yeah, exactly. And instead, what I was doing was really trying to almost tap into that exuberant energy and that excitement. And I found that it was present in the music and the finished product actually felt like it was perfectly welcome in 2020 or 2021. Hmm. That was a really, at least for me, it was more of a breakthrough. I'm sure for plenty of folks out there, they've been kind of operating this way for a while. But for anyone that maybe hasn't stumbled on that and does encounter this feeling of, I'm kind of lost in time and the things that I enjoy, there's not really a place for them. Hmm. I think it'd be worthwhile to do a little thought experiment and ask yourself, okay, what attitude did I sort of bring to that project and what attitude did I bring in presenting that finished work? I'd be curious to see what happens if you really kind of drive it with enthusiasm and exuberance right. all the way through. Man, that's such a good point. I love what you're saying about exuberance. And I do think that personality traits, especially common traits amongst composers, which tend to be deferential because I think part of our role, we're, we're hired by producers and filmmakers. We're hired to make the music they want. And something I remember Conrad Pope talking about when we spoke with him several years ago was the idea that uh, film music has really become a director's medium and they can really insist on right. the specific things they want. I do think, though, emotionally that has affected a lot of composers to the point where they're they're almost gun shy and maybe have a cynical outlook that it's like I can't even bother to try X because it's just going to get shot down and sometimes I right. think we create the problem for ourselves where someone who's almost unaware that that's a possibility that comes to a situation with positivity and exuberance could probably get a certain cue approved that maybe another composer who's very hedging their bets and just timidly reaching over the line, well, they're almost creating the confined space. They're setting up the parameters of the music, which is like the music exists within this framework. So then because of that, any 
step outside of that framework seems odd and that energy will be perceived even by a non-musician. But if you just come right. in full force with what you love, I think people are going to start with that. And even if they have criticisms or maybe they, they don't quite feel the mood is right, I think they're going to respond to what that thing is rather than try to deconstruct it back into the timid example. Totally. Uh, and I think it's it doesn't seem intuitive to us because we're, we're assuming, oh, these aesthetics that prevail, whether it's film music or pop music or games or anything, that there's so much thought and intention behind them in that, you know, the cue that gets approved is the one that the director wanted and the score that exists is the one they wanted for that movie when it's like, Maybe, but it might also have just been the one that happened to exist in those circumstances and that right. happened to get approved. But there could have been a myriad of other choices that would have been in a completely different style or energy. And I think we're very like, oh, well, that works. So that's what we all have to do now. Well, and someone drove the aesthetic initially. Let's say you map on to what we're describing, and I know a lot of our listeners have shared these kinds of opinions. It's like, oh, I really loved the colorful, vivid film music of the 70s and 80s, and maybe even going back to kind of the golden age of Hollywood film score. It can at times feel like, I don't even know if that's welcome in the modern landscape. Well, what if we sort of flip it around and think of the current prevailing film aesthetic and how that had to have entered the landscape. Those that were interested in writing that kind of music, say in the 80s, couldn't they have just as easily said like, oh, there's no place for the kind of music that I'm into because I don't write all of these flourishy woodwind runs and kind of use the symphony in more of a traditional classical way. Well, that experiment played out. We now see, oh, there definitely was an audience for that. I think I've been guilty in my own life, sometimes oversimplifying that trend and noticing maybe some of the simpler musical gestures that are going on and making the mistake of thinking, is the art form moving towards more simplicity, less sophistication? But I think that's that's a limiting belief yeah. that will kind of doom you. And I think you're, you're so right, Will. As film composers, we're particularly vulnerable to this because most of us are very high in agreeability. We want to support the film. It's not just about ourselves. But ultimately, I think every artist is meant to be some kind of leader. And whatever aesthetic features you see in the landscape, those were driven by someone at some point. And you can be that leader too. I agree. And I think that we are at a particular crossroads with music. I mean, I've been so delighted by pop music of late. Like, I think right. the ironic thing is the status quo in pop music is now more melodically and harmonically complex and interesting than your average film cue today, which is insane to think of. Because if you go back decades in the past, the pop musicians were the untrained, intuitive performers, singers, songwriters, and the film composers were the like Juilliard trained conservatory European musicians. And not that that isn't sometimes the case and not obviously that the inverse right. isn't the case, but I think that what you're saying that the, the confidence that is driving the aesthetic trends in each domain are almost at the moment seem to be pushing away from each other in an interesting way that I feel like they've actually overlapped where pop music to me now on average 
is more interesting to listen to melodically, harmonically, in terms of production, in terms of music, there's more to talk about. There's so much more to discuss. Not that there aren't incredible cues in media music, but I think the tricks in the formulas have become more self-evident than in pop music, which definitely wasn't the case. I mean, there were so many years where like a pop song sounded like the the parody of a pop song in the way that sometimes trailers seem like movie trailers seem like parodies of trailers. But I I just don't think that's the case anymore. There've been so many incredible songs this year that feel timeless and contemporary and new and old. And it's a really exciting, inspiring time. Coming from all kinds of sources, songs written in a more expected way, you know, with a team of a dozen songwriters, and we've had great songs that have hit the charts written by just one single songwriter. You know, I have an interesting theory about why that flourishing is happening. I'm curious to kind of pick your brain on it. So going back to something like Soul or The Last of Us 2, these pieces of art that for you and I are kind of on that masterpiece level. For me, another example of that is the musical Hamilton. When I think about Hamilton, I picture almost like a microscopically small bullseye that Lin-Manuel Miranda had to hit, which is basically be incredibly sensitive to the cultural moment in America, the cultural history of America, be incredibly historically accurate understand stagecraft, storycraft, songcraft, be a brilliant lyricist, brilliant composer, amazing rapper. That target, when you really start to think of all of the elements that are there that make Hamilton great, it becomes just this almost impossible bullseye to hit, and yet he has done it. I think several years ago, there was a lot of bemoaning the state of pop music. It was like, oh, it's all these trap beats that sound the same and all these mumble rappers. Anyone could make that beat. Well, that was true, but I think what was happening is we were creating this huge, broad target that almost anyone could hit. And I actually believe we get better results with that scenario than with the inverse. And I think when we can create a giant target in our art form, it might seem initially like, oh, have we fallen so low? This seems too simple for my taste or something like that. But we're creating a really appealing zone for a new artist to enter into. Hey, feeling good, like I should. When in walk around the neighborhood. Feeling blessed, never stressed. Right. And because I think of that artist to the example of Lin-Manuel Miranda, it's like, yes, the finesse of that project is the diameter of like the tip of a pin. It's so precise. But no one came to him and said, you have to make a hip hop musical about the life of Alexander Hamilton. 
that assignment would be impossible for anyone. It's 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 something that came from him. Right. In film music, there are these restricting forces that are creating a pretty small bullseye. Right. When you think of the barriers you have to hurdle over, it's quite difficult to get a cue approved. And this is if you're an established named composer, which is exceedingly difficult to reach that level in a career. Yeah, I, I do think and I I I really don't mean to invoke sort of ageism or kind of a generational conversation, but I do think there's a curve in an artist's life where maybe for a certain number of years you're driving the uh, aesthetic trends in your field or you're part of that movement. And I do think what can tend to happen is after a while you become maybe complacent, you become comfortable and you become the new status quo. But where I think there's a disconnect is for artists who, particularly the iconoclastic ones, they never tend to have that self-awareness of like, oh, I'm no longer iconoclastic. I'm the quote unquote, I'm the man, I'm part of the the new right. thing. And so they still act as though they're rebelling against something when really they're the thing to rebel against. And so it's a perspective that I get from, I hear this from filmmakers, I hear this from composers, where they talk about how novel it is to not write like John Williams. And it's like, John Williams is the only person alive who can do something right. like that anymore. Like that's so far yeah, in the it's past. It's more novel in 1992. Yes. It's less novel in 2021. Um, and so I do think that what we thought was iconoclastic in the 60s, 70s, 80s is part of a different generation. Yeah. And I do think the newer generation, like I'm like sort of the end of the millennials. You were more like in the early part of the millennials, but neither of us are right. Gen Z or Gen X. But what's interesting about Gen Z, because like I don't go on TikTok, I'm not like aware of a lot of that stuff, but occasionally something will pop up to me and I'm just like, there's so much incredible talent, creativity, positivity, humor. Like there's a lot of beauty out there. I think we could do it if we try. Boisterous, flamboyant, unabashed. It's like all the things that seem separate from what the cool, trendy thing is. I think Hamilton's a great example. It's like created with exuberance and with a lack of self-consciousness. I think self-awareness, but not limiting itself or trying to appeal to some targeted group. There's, It's the least pandering work of art, but I think that's why people love it. Because when someone is that passionate, that infectious about something, it resonates. It's like, you don't have to like history. You don't have to like musicals. Right. That, that exuberance is just infectious on the human level. Well, and there's a really interesting phenomenon. Broadway shows and off-Broadway shows have a notorious development process and out-of-town tryouts and, and all that. But it's usually pretty insular and kind of only involving the creative team, even if they are making a lot of changes as they see the piece actually staged. I think it's kind of interesting contrasting maybe how Hamilton was created to kind of your big blockbuster Hollywood film focus grouped, 
you know, kind of on the front end and audience tested on the back end, really to speak to the biggest audience possible and draw in the biggest audience. But yet something like Hamilton, which in many ways is such a surprising project, but the end result actually is bringing together this huge audience. And it happens to be really popular for progressives and conservatives, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't arrived at with a lot of safe choices. Right. I've found, at least in my life experiences, the safe choices stack up to this kind of tasteless experience often. You know, I think what a lot of us really hunger for is actual color, actual spice, actual personality mm -hmm. of an artist. Yeah, I mean, I, I do sort of feel like this. it's a bit reductive, but whenever both sides of a political issue or both sides of a, a philosophical or artistic issue are both subsequently lauding and criticizing a particular work or person, I feel like there's something there that's unique because I've heard, right. you know, conservatives criticize Hamilton because they, whatever, but I've heard, you know, people on the left criticize Hamilton because they say that it's sort of like misrepresents certain things racially or it doesn't have the like most progressive interpretation of history. But it's the kind of thing where it's like, well, if you can get criticized by both sides, I think that means that you're not pandering to anyone. You're writing and creating honestly. Right. And I think subsequently, you know, that show has also received so much praise and acclaim from, as you said, people of, of all sides, all colors and stuff like that is really inspiring when the art isn't a byproduct of some other agenda. It isn't like what's going to make money or what's going to sell. Not that there's like a contempt yeah. for success, but that the drive, the spark of inspiration is superordinate to, to any of those things. That's so exciting. And I think we can have the cake and eat it too. We can have that energy, that driving motivator in film, in mass media, without inherently making it not profitable. Right. I'm curious, how would you relate what you're describing to kind of the current state of film music and demoing and cue approval and the like? I think that the process as it currently stands is really, really stacked against the composer. There's so many uphill battles on every front, whether it has to do with the expectations, the way contracts are verbalized, uh, performance rights, royalties, things like that, uh, in terms of the the ridiculously inhumane timeframes that right. so many composers are working under, sometimes like verbal abuse conditions, ghostwriting, lack of crediting authorship. There's, there's so much bad stuff that's happening. But then even aside from all of that, we have the particular conundrum of our 21st century tools, of our technology, of our MIDI-based, DAW-based composers. And even the most talented of them have this new challenge. We're writing music for, in some cases, an ensemble that's existed for a thousand years, but we're approaching it in this new way. And the machine has wants. It wants, it encourages us to do what it can do well. And it discourages us from doing what the orchestra can do well. And it's so hard to fight against that. And there's very little incentive to 
um, strive for that because there's so many forces saying like, well, this sound is old fashioned and we don't want it. This is the modern sound. And you know, this is, it's quicker to make, you'll get cues approved. It sounds better with virtual instruments. It's faster on the, there's like so many reasons to move in a certain kind of minimal overproduced anti-acoustic way that are outside of aesthetic taste. It's a tough situation for composers, but it's yeah. also exciting because there are so many forms of media. And even though I think you and I maybe sometimes uh, really idealize that that particular period between like the invention of television and the invention of the internet, where at least within one country or like within America, that's our only frame of reference, there could be this unified culture where you get the sense everyone's watching the same TV, everyone's listening to the same music. Well, and a flourishing of so much art across so many mediums. You know, there's something I'm curious about. The sort of accepted understanding with virtual instruments is that we're climbing up this hill and we're hoping to cross over an uncanny valley of sorts. So what must happen is we need to produce music via the virtual instruments that sounds quote unquote real. And so we're dependent on the quality of those sample libraries, our skills as mixers, producers, etc. I'm starting to ask another question, which is, what if there was a world where we accepted virtual music that didn't sound real? <laughs> I kind of only asking this because along what you're saying about stumbling onto TikTok and seeing really exciting pieces of art or ideas or whatever from Gen Z, um, I can't tell you how many interesting like orchestral mock-ups that are full of color and ideas and lyrical movement that I, I see kind of just trolling around YouTube. And a lot of them probably don't pass the kind of smell test, which is like, no, it's got to sound really real. Anyways, I'm just asking that because this is the first year going back to the pop world where I've noticed songs in the Hot 100 that I would have said five years ago do not sound good. The way the vocals recorded would have been described as amateur even three years ago. The mix is not all that impressive. In some of these cases, these are songs that blew up on TikTok. They had an indisputable following, and they make it onto the charts. People are buying it. As it turns out, the consumer either might not notice or might not care. I'm curious if a similar phenomenon could be around the corner in film music, you know, so much of us have been watching streaming content that is produced with virtual orchestras, doesn't have real recording sessions. We're exposed to plenty of games that have their music produced that way, too. I'm just wondering if we might not have to make this excruciating climb up the hill and try to cross over the uncanny yeah. valley, hope that we can have the most perfect, immaculate woodwind library or whatever. Maybe there might be other paths we're not thinking about that can kind of get us around this moment that we're in. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because I do think a lot of virtual instruments are really getting to that point where they're capable of crossing the uncanny valley, at least in, in certain cases. Right. So that's exciting. We also have the advent of machine learning AI software that is going to be very relevant in all yeah. of our lives in the upcoming years for better or for worse. So there's there's a lot potential change, but what you, you struck on that I think is interesting, that actually reminds me more of our parents' generation, which is that 
the attention to art had more to do with the substance of the idea and the the writing, the core of the idea than it had to do with the polish. And I think our Man. generation is, I think, part of an opposite movement where we became so obsessed with visual effects, visual fidelity, graphics cards, frame rates, all this technical Yeah, the rise stuff. of graphic design, I think, is really interesting. Um, polish was really important for the millennial generation. Yeah. Polish signaled a kind of professionalism, mm -hmm. a kind of legitimacy. And I'm curious if that's going to really hold. Right. I do think, I mean, trends tend to be followed by counter reactions. And I think the ideal should still be an excellent, like the Bruno Mars, an excellent idea, core melody, great lyrics, euphoric performance, and it's exceptionally mixed and well-engineered. It's, it's the whole package. But yeah. I, I do think the most important aspect of that song is the writing. And I do think like with tools like TikTok that inherently make what's being presented not up to that former level of like polish, that it forces you to focus on, I think, the more core level of like, is this a good impression? Is this a funny joke? Is this like a good right. dance move? Like it, it's about what's being filmed. Yeah. Does this 20 second song stick in your head? Yeah. Yes. And that's great because I think we need to rediscover whatever you could call that, but the, the substance over style. And I think we've been in a long period. Uh, obviously, there are counterexamples, as there would be in any era of art, but we have been in a period that seems to value style over substance. And I think it's possible we're going to flip in the other direction and maybe start to overvalue substance and undervalue style. But hopefully we don't we, we don't have to lose these things. And this is what excites me about pop music right. is there are so many brilliant producers, engineers, songwriters out there that have elevated that medium to a whole other level. And now if there can be a rediscovery of great songwriting craft the sky is the limit as far as I'm concerned. There have been so many artists that I've discovered, you know, through Emma or things that become popular on Instagram or TikTok. When you were talking about what you were saying, the artist that came to my mind, who's been someone I've been obsessed with lately, is this guy from California. He's this Mexican dude named Cuco. And he had this yeah, song so that was really popular on uh, TikTok. Like, it's just like a 30-second thing, this sort of bossa nova, but with the sort of like modern produced trap percussion and everything. And it's like, it had that, it was very rugged, very raw sounding. It didn't sound polished by any means, but what a great idea. An exceptional melody, beautiful harmonies, really groovy, and all of his music is like that. The melodic lines are like Weezer. They're so pure and singable and catchy and optimistic. The songs are so sweet and honest, but it does have the quality of like a teenager who's still learning production. And the fact that something like that could become viral, it's so bizarre because we, we would have almost thought it would have gone the other way. That like in the early days of the internet, YouTube videos that blow up are the ones with low production value. But, you know, eventually over time, people get better cameras and now the standards of and I think for YouTube, that's sort of the case where like the YouTube stars now are essentially like emulating film or television production. They, their standards have to go up. Right, but right. with some of these newer tools, I think we find that people do hunger for the raw thing. They, they hunger for that sort of um, 
the universality that like anyone can make it. And it's not about the polish. It's like, I, I saw this amazing woman on Instagram th- that recently, this woman who does mouth impressions. So she impersonates different actors and actresses, but focuses on their mouth and she can do everyone. She'll do like Drew Barrymore and then Kristen Wiig. And then she'll do like Tom Hanks. She'll just like jump around to every actor. And it's uncanny how spot on these impressions are And her voice is great, how she does it, but she focuses on her mouth and like, what a weird thing that nothing like that would ever have existed in any other era or any other medium, but it's an incredibly rich art form that she's almost invented. But you need that close-up camera. It needs to be the selfie angle. You need to be right up and see that what that looks like. You couldn't do that in front of a live audience in the same way. And stuff like that excites me because to me, emotionally, I know it seems like a silly thing, but it has the purity of like Dana Carvey on Saturday Night Live, but it's entirely sure. for its medium. And the fact that new mediums can produce art or or cultural things that have that feeling is really exciting that it isn't just some frivolous toy that represents like the dumbing down of culture. It's, it's a new opportunity for art to emerge. And it's like Jurassic park life finds a way. Right. It sounds like you're getting that kind of tingly feeling of new frontiers. That's what we all need. I'm curious, what do you think would happen if say Lady Gaga or Bruno Mars got to compose a film score. So they're not doing songs for a soundtrack. They're actually going to compose the instrumental score. I guess what I'm asking is, can we imagine a world where a new composer can kind of come to the table with maybe some extra weight to throw around? Do you think something like that would be possible? Or are the structures that are in place so strict that they would be facing basically the identical pressures. I really wonder. I I part of me feels like it, it depends so much on the marketing. I think they would have to at least do a song for the film. They would have to be a part of it in some conceptual way. Uh but I think it, it would certainly be possible. I think in those two examples, I see them as artists that almost value the performing part of what they do above the the songwriting part, but that's not saying that they're not exceptionally hardworking and incredible songwriters. But I think even just in terms of how they've had to structure their career. But let's say just for for the sake of I, argument, for the sake of yeah, the would they write amazingly melodic music or kind of interesting? I I could definitely see it, uh, especially if they were asked to bring their musical aesthetics into the score of that picture, that it isn't like they're just kind of doing the modern sound, that it isn't separate from that, but it's like they're being asked to capture some of that. I mean, yeah, I I could see totally. I mean, there was that Daft Punk scored Tron film. and Oh, let's pour one out for Daft Punk, man. Totally. Um, but even that makes me think of like Pharrell Williams. I could see him doing something like, I mean, there's so many artists that have that like chameleon like quality in terms of genre or style. I think they'd be phenomenal film composers. I'm curious about the politics of it though. Um, because it tends to feel, as you say, it's a, and as Conrad Pope mentioned in our conversation many episodes ago, it is a director's medium, 
Also, I think it's important what you mentioned about contracts, the power of a union like the DGA, like all of this stuff plays a part, right? Um, I'm just trying to imagine, is there any scenario where a film composer could come in with enough power, enough leverage to not face some of the same pressures that are so routinely happening now. And I suppose underneath my question is, can we picture any steps that would make the assembly line a little less restrictive? It's I have a hard time picturing it, but I, I believe something will happen. I mean, I'd love to get scores where it's like the American version of Jan Tiersen. You know, it's right, weird right. to me that more stuff akin to that hasn't really happened, that we haven't had very many scores that take our appealing uh, styles of popular music and translate them into a score in not a hybrid way. So it's not orchestra with, you know, uh, 808 drums in the background, but I mean like literally making pop music the score and not a film composer using electronic sample. Like, I mean, accurate, like you know, that, that it, it's appealing in the same way. Right. There's so much potential there. And I feel like what's a little sad potentially is that like we've missed out on decades of that because at least in America, it's like every decade seems to have some really strong prevailing aesthetics. And back in the sixties and seventies, there were definitely scores that were using the language of pop music of the day to score movies and what's interesting is now our non-traditional scores, our non-classical, like I guess, or symphonic scores occupy this sort of hybrid space that seems like it's people that stopped doing their learning in the 60s and 70s, but are now using modern tools to create this sort of music that's of its own genre. And I think a lot of it's very visceral and effective, but it's not right. appealing in the same ways that our pop music is appealing. And it's not appealing in the ways that old film yeah, music was Yeah, the sound appealing. engineering face of it or veneer of it speaks something modern. But yeah, I agree. It's like fundamentally the compositional ideas underneath don't strike me as particularly modern or of our moment. Yeah, I mean, I think things that excite me too are like, I don't know if you know that scene in John Wick where it's all that whole kind of fight, uh, I think even like a gun battle type thing that takes place in this nightclub and it's all yeah, yeah. basically choreographed to, you know, to that song in the sort of Baby Driver style. Uh, right. And Baby Driver did this excellently too. But w what I was a little surprised about is I thought sequences like that would have a profound impact and maybe it's it's yet to happen, but would have a profound impact on the capacity for film music to be of a decidedly different genre style. Um, and those cases are, you know, needle drop songs and it's choreographed and edited around that. But there's no reason why a score couldn't affect that way. I do think some of the constraints is it's like, then you have to commit to a single tempo. You have to commit to a groove that you can't so easily chase. You have to commit to kind of a song form that's easily identifiable. So I almost think there could be a phenomenon of 
films that want moments like that, but still want their own custom music, having composers yeah. write music rather than being at the end of the process, being at the beginning of the process and writing music before filming occurs. This has happened in a lot of cases before, actually, um, and some more recent cases, even not in exactly what I'm talking about with the pop music aesthetic. But I do think that's going to start happening more and more um, because there also has been a trend of getting away from cutting to picture and scoring the scene in a nuanced way and just getting to more sort of like playing over all the moments. I'm not really a fan of that in scores, especially if the music is not very interesting to me. It's kind of like, what is it really offering? You'd be better to just have a song in this moment because the song is offering lyrics and melody and instrumentation and production in a way that's sometimes film music that sort of plays over the scene. Isn't really doing all that. So I feel like if it's not scoring the scene, what's it really doing there? But that also does open the door for other possibilities, I think. Well, I'd love to turn to, and maybe we can even close on the biggest musical development in your life, the start of your media music composing graduate program at Columbia. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing. Yeah. So this year's been really exciting for me for a lot of reasons. I mentioned, you know, Emma and I got engaged and we've done stuff with Ember Willow through the year. A lot of it just sort of personally on our own. But yeah, the really big thing has been moving to Chicago and I've started this graduate program, this film music composition program at Columbia College in Chicago. And uh, it's It's a phenomenal program. It's the kind of thing that I still can't believe something like this exists at all. And the fact that it exists in the Midwest is unbelievable to me, but it really is a sort of unparalleled program in terms of its curriculum and in terms of how it's structured. One of the things I love about it is that it's very practical. It's very sort of industry facing and everything from the coursework to the structures of communication, to how assignments are graded are entirely based around the practices of the professional industry. Everyone who works in the program is a working professional in that field outside of teaching. So they put more of an emphasis on professional experience than they do on professional teachers. As you can imagine, there are strengths and weaknesses that would come along with that, but it's so entirely unique and feels so separate from any academic experience I've ever had. For me, the biggest highlight, even outside of all the things that I've learned in my classwork and just from these mentors, has been my peer group of composer colleagues. These are some of the most talented, inspiring, great people I've ever met in my life. I It's the first time I think in my life that I ever really felt like I was part of a group that I felt like I could be myself around, that I could have the identity that I see myself having and that I feel like I fit in and I'm understood. Dude, that's just so, so It's beautiful. amazing being around a group of, com- of other people who are composers and care about the things I care about. People that care about and love melody. People that love writing for the orchestra and are obsessed with John Williams and will go down, you know, a four-hour rabbit hole dissecting some particular mode of orchestration. But that's not to say that we're all the same. I think that's really exciting to be able to share some of that with our audience, 
essentially we have so much talent waiting in the wings. Not only do we have talent kind of all around the world of varying backgrounds, but folks that are dedicated to this career path. And you're not going to be able to stop these voices. You know, they're not going to stop your voice or that of any of your colleagues in the program. Well, some of these are people who've achieved an incredible deal of success outside of the program and outside of this particular industry. Some people might wonder, like cynically, what are they going to school for? They already have maybe enough money or they have enough connections. But I think everyone in the program that I see is really dedicated towards self-improvement. And so the thing that I've really found is I've been so much more introspective since I've started here. And not just like as a composer, but just as a person thinking about my life, how I can be a better friend, brother, husband, partner. Like it's helped me to be introspective, I think in a really great way, because everyone that I'm in contact with is on this path of humility of self-improvement. It doesn't feel like a competitive program. We're not fighting against each other. We're we're lifting each other up. People are so generous. My friend the other day said like, oh, I love this piece you did. I want to email this to this filmmaker that I worked with uh, and Cal Arts. They're this animator and I think they'd really like your music. And it's like, that that to me is so yeah. blows my mind that there can be a community of composers that aren't it's not even that they're passive aggressive it's not like friendly to your face but secretly wanting your destruction well, it's like the, everyone lifts each other that up they're we decidedly non cutthroat and this has been my yeah. experience too um you know whenever having the opportunity either to study with other composers or just share a room with other composers they we tend to be very i think giving people we're very enthusiastic about this art form and i haven't met a composer that wants that seems to have the impulse to hoard art we want to share it that's just so exciting and it's life affirming and i've just been so happy for you over this year i mean to be clear you've thus far done all of this during covid under quarantine um, all right. of your coursework is via Zoom meetings. Right. And I'm just so excited that you've had just such an incredible bright spot in what's been such a strange year. Yeah. I think all of us are looking forward to your class and your <laughs> colleagues and all the great music that you're going to bring into the culture. Thanks, man. I- I'm really excited to see what some of these people come up with. And I'm really excited for you to meet some of my friends because I just, there's several people in particular (laughs) that I know you and Carl would really get along with. And there's just, yeah, there's some, a caliber of talent that at least speaks to me in a really inspiring way. Uh, So I feel like it inspires me to to be better even more than a grade or doing well in a class. It's like, I feel like yeah. it makes me want to work hard because I'm inspired by what everyone else is doing and I don't want to drop the ball. And then if people like something that you do, there's this added level of pressure where it's like, I'm not just doing it for me, I'm doing it for them. And like, it, it's interesting. And I think everyone yeah. sort of feels a similar way about it. So yeah, it's been a lot of highs and lows of uh, of emotions but just making new friends has been really special well we 
hope you've enjoyed our very wide-ranging conversation, kind of the year of quarantine in review. And yeah, I encourage anyone listening to go through this exercise yourself. We've definitely found it to be a lot of fun to see if we can recall some of the bright spots in our year. We could just as easily fill an episode with all of the low, dark moments. I don't know about you, Will, but I feel kind of a new zest for life after talking about what we've been talking about today. And I'm just so excited to kind of kick off this new chapter of the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Don't fear. We're planning on bringing the same scope of content, style of content that we have in the past. Uh, But it was really important for us to kind of rev up the engines in this way. Yeah. And I really wanted to mention uh, the podcast, the Legacy of John Williams podcast that Marty and I were featured on recently so generously. We had a wonderful conversation with Maurizio and John Maria Casqueto, who run that podcast we had just an incredible conversation talking about John Williams and talking about growing up in a musical family and kind of the bond between brothers when talking about film music which sounds like such a specific thing but it really is kind of a phenomenon and it's something I've noticed even in this program it's a really like, deep and rich well yeah. yeah other composers where it's like uh, my brother and I really got into film music together. And there's, there's something yeah. about that that is interesting. So I definitely recommend checking out that episode that Marty and I were on, The Legacy of John Williams. And really, if you haven't been perusing that podcast up until this point and you're interested at all in any of the content that we've shared, please go subscribe to The Legacy of John Williams podcast. They have incredible episode after incredible episode featuring key individuals in the John Williams story, musicians, fellow composers, producers, conductors, and the class that Maurizio brings as a host is just second to none. And can't say enough about it. Blind subscribe. Please do it. Also, we wanted to mention, and those of you that had been supporting us on Patreon will already be aware of this, because our show had been on hiatus for so long, we just didn't feel comfortable about keeping our Patreon active. So as of right now, there is no Patreon for the show. We're going to continue to be a free podcast. So no fear there. Yeah, so we just want to thank all of you who were so generous over the years that we had that Patreon Um, And just your support, either financial or just through listening. And those of you that have reached out to us, we want you to know that we are still here and we care about you and we appreciate you. Uh, And we're excited to get back into this. You know, I I think the show could take so many different forms because the the real thing that's always going to be a constant is Marty and I talking about film music. And I think what's fun about Underscore is that we have so many different kinds of segments, whether it's our deep dives into film music, our real change episodes, our interview episodes, some of the little one-offs. One of the things that's made the show difficult to produce is just all of the research, preparation, and post-production that has to go into it. But I think we can find a balance of providing those kind of film music analysis type resources as well as things like this that are more conversational and just us 
discussing things in our lives and hopefully we can be a more <laughs> regular presence in a more regular podcast in the future. Yeah, here, here. So thanks again to all of you out there listening. Thank you so much, each and everyone that had ever been a patron to the show. You really are like family to us. We could not have ever gotten the podcast off the ground without it. And thank you to everyone that's ever listened or been curious about the podcast. We're really excited to be back here with you. Here, here. Well, take care, everybody. See you soon. Underscore is part of the Marcado Brothers Podcast Network.